Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have joined forces to battle evil, the newest heroes joining the champions of the Golden Age, presenting Tales of the Justice Society of America. Welcome to episode five of Tales of the Justice Society of America. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the show. I am Scott Gardner. And I am Michael Bailey, and we are not going to waste any time this week because we have gotten so much email on our first four episodes. Scott and I are just completely blown away by this. Yes. Because we have both, you know, we both do. Three other podcasts, basically. Uh, you know, if you count the Spider-Man crawl space, which I do once a month with with that panel, and between my views from the long box and my from crisis to crisis, and Scott has two true freaks, and back to the bins, I don't think either of us got as much email on the initial episodes combined as we've gotten on. <laughs> right. On this whole thing, we've gotten like a total of like 16 emails, which, you know, when you say it out loud, it doesn't sound impressive, but but the feedback has just been phenomenal, and we're just going to launch right into it. Uh, first one is from regular listener Dion Cottrell, like I could say regular listener after five episodes. <laughs> He's been there for the first four. Uh, Dion writes, a nice mix of current goings-on, nostalgia, and humor this time out. And this is regarding episode two. And yes, the Smallville Superman should be wearing his costume by now. Until next week, Dion, P.S., I owned the Evil Knievel action figure and Super Stunt Cycle when I was a kid. So I guess I'm as guilty as Scott of being quote-unquote old. Ha. (laughs) His notes this week are, one, Power Girl is often shorthanded as the Supergirl of Earth 2, but I think she's historically suffered from being viewed that way. I won't get into the post-crisis 1985 retcons, including her supposed ties to Atlantis. Thankfully, her backstory has mostly gotten better since. She's visually distinctive, of course, but I'm not sure the 1970s writers knew quite what to do with her character-slash-characterization. Don't mean to knock Jerry Conway or Paul Levitz, who are fine writers, but regardless of the continuity and the storytelling challenges, Power Girl has needed more writerly help than she sometimes received. I'll agree with that. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I agree that originally I think she was a bit shorthanded as the Supergirl of Earth 2, and I think we've talked about this a bit on this show, but yes. over time... Whether consciously or, or not, I think that they began to realize that that they were doing that, and she became so much more than that over time. To where, you know, strangely, I never really saw her and Supergirl as counterparts to one another. You know, with like, you know, when when the Flash, you know, the two Flashes would be side by side, or the two Green Lanterns, you could very clearly see. You know, they were the counterparts of one another. But if you ever saw Power Girl and Supergirl side by side, 
I never really got the feeling that that one was you know the mirror of the other, if you know what I mean. And I, and I like that. Yeah. I like that they were very distinct personalities. And it's one of the things that made Earth Two just on a dramatic level a little more enjoyable than Earth One. Right. So, plus, Power Girl would never have let herself go into the Phantom Zone on a trumped-up charge for thirty days. <laughs> I, just, I just don't. I just don't see her doing that. So. Here's a reference to something Scott talked about almost a year ago on Two True Freaks. Um, two, there's no doubt that Rick Estrada's pencils pale in comparison with Keith Giffen's and Joe Staten's later contributions. For my money, Wally Wood is much better as a penciler, especially when inking himself. But it's less his inks than Estrada's pencils that call all, cause All-Star Comics number 58 to feel extremely dated art-wise. The story, by contrast, does move rather quickly compared with many issues of the time. Kudos to Conway for making everything flow as smoothly as it did. He impressively manages to include all the setup essentials as well as a good bit of action in a mere 17 pages. Mere was in quotes there. Amen. I will totally yeah. agree with that because it's like I said at the time. I mean, anytime I sit down to read a book this old, you know, a comic this old, I always have that sense of. <sighs> Okay, I'm in for the long haul. And I blew through that so fast, and it was re- it was really refreshing because even if you love something from back in this era, you still have that feeling of, oh, my God, this is going to be, like, super exposition heavy, and it's going to take me, you know, an hour to read it. And these are really quick reads, but in an awesome way. You know what I mean? Yes. They They cram so much in, but it's not written like a, you know, forgive me, Roy Thomas book to where, you know, it takes you forever to get through it because he throws everything and the kitchen sink at you exposition-wise. I, I, you know, Roy Thomas came from that Stan Lee school where if there was a character on the page, damn it, they had to be saying something. Right. You know, no matter how inane it might be. And again, this is coming from two people that love and respect Roy Absolutely. Thomas. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. So please do not, do not write him and, and, and spoil us on him already because we're going to try to get him hopefully later in the show's history. Um, three, although some listeners slash readers will find the point a bit pedantic, I agree that it's important to distinguish the Golden Age versions of DC characters from their Earth 2 counterparts. There is as many differences as we want to count, however small each one seems in isolation. And for those of us who care about such things, those differences enrich the reading experience immensely. Case in point, Wildcat has no parallel on Earth-1, though most of the rest of DC's Golden Age characters quote-unquote naturally found analogs on Earth-1 by the dint of the continuity shift that occurred in 1960s-1970s. I'll agree with that. I, I uh, Yeah. I, 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 you know, he makes two very valid points there is that there are differences between the way Dr. Fate was portrayed in the Golden Age, for example, because we're going to be talking about him later in the, uh, in the episode, and what was done with his Earth 2 version after Flash 123. Mm-hmm. And it is important to notice those distinctions because. I'm sorry, I'm in this for the minutiae. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I am not going to sit there and invest as much time as I have invested in reading and studying comic books and their history, both in terms of the characters' history and the stories, as well as their real-world history, without, you know, if I'm going to put that much time into it, hell, I'm going to go whole hog. 
And if I'm going to notice, like, the dumbest little continuity glitch ever, damn it, I'm going to point it out because that, to me, is interesting. Right. That, to me, that's the whole purpose or, or one of the main purposes in us doing the character spotlights is when we cover a character that does exist on both Earths, like, uh, you know, like we did Robin, for example, that's one of the main purposes in my mind of doing that is I want to point out where the divergences are because up to a point the Earth 2 Robin and the Earth 1 Robin are are pretty much the same guy but then at some point they split and it's those splits and it's those differences that I think make the Earth 2 characters so very interesting you know and and so uh you know, just so dynamic in their in their own world because this isn't just you know a big Elseworld story or something like that. I mean, these are very different characters and very you know they have their own very unique identities and unique histories and and their own unique takes. A lot of times, that's the stuff I really, really, really look forward to exploring. Indeed, and that is it from Dion this week. Cool. All right, I, I've got one here. Um, I like. I always like the ones that start out. You know, the the emails that start out where part of the email is actually started in the header. You know, the title yes. header. And this one is from uh, from Thomas. I don't see a last name on this. That's Tom DJ. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. You're right. I can I can tell by his signature that it is. Okay. Oh, yeah. This is from Thomas DJ. He writes. Uh, I don't know what's funnier. You two acting out the Hostess Fruit Pie commercial or the total destruction you guys released on Big Jim's pack? (laughs) (laughs) I am ashamed to admit that I owned the whip figure whose boomerangs promptly disappeared under the couch. He actually wrote coach, which I thought was funny, but that, that sounds a little disturbing, so... Um, disappeared under the couch as I tried to ma- uh, make him fling them. Good work, gentlemen. That's from uh, Thomas G- DJ, the uh, host of Better in the D- Is he host or co-host of Better in the Dark? He's co-host of Better in the Dark with uh, Derek Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually on two episodes last month, so that was that was a lot of fun. We got to talk about Superman a lot. And I will use any excuse to talk about Superman. He also hosts... A very much, uh, admittedly, in the vein of Tom Cater's Tom versus the Flash and Tom versus the D, uh, the uh, the JLA mm-hmm. uh, DJ's Comics yeah. Cavalcade, where on the even episodes he talks about Silver Age Green Lantern, and on the odd he talks about Silver Age Captain America. Cool. And he's one funny guy. Uh, he is. Uh, he he joined me recently on an episode of uh, Back to the Bins, and uh, he will be. Uh, rejoining me on at least two more um, episodes that'll be coming along sometime in the sort of halfway near future. So listen for those. Alrighty, next up we have one from Jack Perez. I'm butchering your last name. I do apologize. He writes, uh, well, his, his... I, I, I am almost too humble to read the... Uh, I'm not! <laughs> okay. The, uh, the, the email title is Best Show Ever. It says, Hello, Michael and Scott. 
Thanks for the first episode. Really enjoyed the show. Not only did I enjoy the discussion of Earth 2, but the insight on how it was not a static universe. The discussion of the iconic covers was also enjoyable. Myself, I have always enjoyed the cover for All-Star Squadron number 41. Mm-hmm. It is pretty much the only iconic dis- depiction of Starman in the original costume. And cover number 38 freaked my mom out, which means as a kid that it must be awesome. <laughs> But All-Star Comics number 63 was amazing. For any Solomon Grundy fan, this one has to be read. In two weeks, you will know what he's talking mm-hmm. about, because Grundy is large and in charge <laughs> of that cover. I'm going to keep listening. Hope you guys keep talking. Cheers, Jack. Well, we are going to keep talking, so uh-huh. we're, we're going to hold you to that. Keep listening, Jack. Thank you for the email. Thank you for the quote, because uh, when I post up new episodes, there, there's a thread on the uh, on the CGS, they, on Comic Geek Speaks forum. They have a thread up there called Promote Your Podcast, where they just, you know, they welcome folks to go in and, and you know, update that thread as often as they like with you know, pimping their shows out. Well, anytime I have a new show that I'm tied to, I go in there and I pimp it. Every time I put up a new episode of uh, Tales of the Justice Society of America, my signature on that says, best show ever, Jack Perez. <laughs> so it was just a great little, you know, it's like those those cover blurbs you see on DVDs, you know. Joel, whatever from you know WKBS says, you know this movie was awesome or whatever. That that's kind of like my little DVD cover blurb, so I love it. All right, this one here is from Chris Cavett. He writes, guys, I like the podcast and would like to subscribe. I'm having trouble finding a subscribe link or RSS feed. Um, I'm manually downloading the episodes and then loading them into iTunes. Can you please tell me how to subscribe? Thanks. Um, I'm pretty sure there's an RSS feed there, isn't there? Yeah, but it's for the Two True Freaks. Ah, I see. So he's looking for something that's unique. He's looking for Tales of the JSA I gotcha. as its own entity. I gotcha. So that's why when we changed up the sig- the signature at the signature, the outro, whatever you want to call it, at the end of the episode, I, uh, you know, I, we we made that distinction that you can subscribe through the Two True Freaks feed on iTunes. Plus, you'll get three other great podcasts. So. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that Batman Adventures one, by the way, is very good. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I, I've uh, The numbers on it have been very good, but I've gotten precious little actual feedback, so I appreciate you saying that. Uh, I would like to hear more people chime in and tell me what, they, what they're thinking on that particular one. It's a fun little experiment to see if a normally verbose person such as myself can actually do a podcast in under five minutes and so far it's been a challenge but it's been a hell of a lot of fun too so anyway uh chris i i that was his name right chris yeah chris i hope that uh you were able to uh to subscribe to the show that way the next one is from andrew renz Salendu. Again, I'm hoping... Why do I get the heart? <laughs> I was just thinking, I'm glad that you got the one. That... <laughs> I'm glad you get to look like the idiot, Mike. Uh, <laughs> it's part of my evil plan. <laughs> Thanks and suggestions, this one is titled. Dear Scott and Mike, greetings from Jakarta, Indonesia. Ooh. We are international! <laughs> I get a kick out of people in other countries listening to 
of the podcasts yeah. that I take part in. I don't, I don't know about you. It just, it just boggles my mind. Also makes me feel bad when I mention like purely American things too. <laughs> I've been listening to Views from the Long Box for a while, thank you, and recently came across Scott's podcast as well. Sweet. So happy So happy to hear that you guys are joining forces for a podcast solely dedicated to my favorite super team. Love the first episode. Here's to many more to come. Can I suggest, other than character spotlights, maybe you can do some creator spotlights as well. Maybe you guys can arrange some interviews or just discuss stuff about the people whose contributions to the JSA legend are indispensable. Me, my favorite JSA stories are the ones done by Lenz Trzewski and Mike Parabek. Still holds a place in my as my favorite comic run ever. Oh, <laughs> I love that run. <laughs> Well, just want to drop you a line. Really appreciate the effort you've done. P.S. The Hugo Danner podcast was both fascinating and informative. Well done, guys. Oh, thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot. We had a lot of fun doing that one, too. That was, that was such a labor of love. It really was, because we're both such big fans of, of Hugo Danner. And, more importantly, that's what kind of led to all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was definitely the springboard. <laughs> it was all that talking about... You know, young all stars and Roy Thomas and and all of that. You know, both on on the air, what you heard in the episode, and then you know beforehand and after we were done recording and everything. That really was the springboard to this very show. So yeah, that's that's totally awesome. Also, uh, you know, he said the magic words, Mike Parabek. Man, I am a huge, huge, huge Mike Parabek fan. Uh, there's there's to me there's fewer sadder stories in the in the comic book world than Mike Parabek. You know, he was he was taken from us at such an early age, was just starting to to gain respect and fame and popularity and everything in, in the world of comics and, and then he died, you know, so tragically young. Loved Mike Parabek stuff. Really I, I miss him to this very day. So yeah, I'm itching to get to that the era as well. That's quite a ways down the road, but we will uh, we will definitely be enjoying that when we get there. Very much so. Uh, let's see. We've got one. This one just says All-Star Comics number 58. This is from Frankie Adiego. I believe that's how you okay. pronounce it. It says, The second episode rocked. I never paid any uh, great attention to the Big Jim's Pack ad, but when you guys started talking about it, it had me in stitches. Well, thank you. <laughs> this is the only thing I would disagree with you guys on is that Earth 2 was the first retcon. On John Byrne's John Burns website, he argues that Superboy was the very first retcon. And I would uh, go even further to say that Alfred the Butler's metamorphosis to the svelte, polished guy we know today is really the first, or at least the first, to actually contradict what had been established. Anyway, I'm excited to see the Justice Society of America spinoff you guys were talking about, uh, talking about toward the beginning. Sincerely, Frankie Adiego. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? He, he he's got a valid point about uh, about Superboy. Yeah, I would agree with it. I mean, in every origin, even going up to the one from 1948, which was the first like full origin for the comic books. Right. Uh, you know, he he was you know his parents die, he becomes uh, Superman. He never was Superboy, and that was at a time when Superboy was still being public. Right. So really, if you want to be a stickler, that's the first appearance of Earth 2. But See, it's to, it, it depends on what your personal definition of retcon is, because I think retcon has a different 
um, connotation to different people because, I mean, a retcon can be something really tiny like, you know, going back and suddenly somebody who was a World War II vet, suddenly now they're a Vietnam vet because you're trying to update things. Or it can be something huge like you're actually going back to the origins of the character and adding a whole new dimension like Superman now having been Superboy. So I guess it really depends on on your personal definition. But uh, I don't know what I would consider to be the first retcon because, you know, in, in the beginning, things were so, you know, they were playing so fast and loose. There was no such thing really as continuity. Sure, the, the characters progressed from from one event to another or something, but, you know, it, it took a while before there were stories that actually reflected back on themselves or any sense of, of what we know today as continuity. So I, I don't know that any of that could really be considered retcons until there was actually a point where where they were referring back. I don't know. Does that make any sense at all? No, it makes perfect sense. I mean, when you, when you go into DC Silver Age, and, and I am one of these people that is very adamant on the fact that the Silver Age started in 1956 with showcase number four. Right. You can be a Marvel fan all day long. I don't care. Now, let me ask you on that subject, not to derail us, but on that subject, where does the Silver Age end, in your opinion? Conan number one. And what year is that? 1970, somewhere okay, around. That's interesting. Because, see, I, I divvy up those eras completely different from most anybody else I've ever talk to whereas to me the silver age see i don't really consider you know, a lot of people when they when they talk about comics they'll talk about the golden age the silver age the bronze age and then whatever the more modern ages are to me dc does not have anything that that i would call a bronze age it goes from the golden age to the silver age to what i would actually call the dark age which was when in the in the late 80s into the 90s everybody suddenly took a turn to being grim and gritty and the reason I divide it up that way is if you look at, um, I think it's Crisis Number Eight, where the Flash dies, they give a year on him on his life, nineteen fifty six to nineteen eighty five, I believe it is. Yes. And I think the reason they do that is because they are showing that he both um, birthed and closed out the Silver Age. That his birth in 56 in Showcase number 4 and his death in that very issue, Crisis number 8, were the bookends on the Silver Age. And I, I've always held to that. I still to this day. But I'm talking about DC. The, see, I, I, another thing is I don't think people uh, I, divide it up between DC and Marvel having different ages. They want to lump, lump them together. Like you, you yourself just said that to you the Bronze Age starts with uh, – with Conan, but see, that's that's a Marvel book. So for DC, you're wondering, I would say the Bronze Age starts either with Green Lantern and Green Arrow number 76 hmm. or Superman number 233, which was the Kryptonite right, Nevermore. Kryptonite no more, yeah. Because that's when Julius Schwartz took over as editor of Superman. And that was a serious line of demarcation as far as that character was concerned. And around the same time, you had Denny O'Neill and Frank Robbins writing Batman with, you know, Neil Adams doing a lot of the, uh, a lot of the Batman art, and then Jim Aparo coming on. I think there is a very distinct difference between the DC stories of the 60s 
and the D, you know, from 1956 to around 1970 or so, and the DC stories of 70 to 85. You're right. You're right. And I, I can see that, but I don't know. There's something in my mind that still wants to put all that under the same, the same no, banner. If you the, know the I mean. history is the same. I right. mean, it's not like from the 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 Silver Age to the Bronze Age, there was a whole new universe that was birthed out of that. Right. So both both viewpoints are equally as valid. Yes. You know, so it's it's not like anybody you know you know people like to say you're wrong, but you know, <laughs> you know with comics, a lot of the time, when it, especially when you're splitting hairs with ages of comics, I think you got to have some give and take. Well, I think on. there's a lot of hairs there to split because I think if you're going to argue for the. Uh, <laughs> For the Green Arrow, Green Lantern stuff, or for the Superman, you know, Kryptonite, no, is it Kryptonite no more or Kryptonite never more? I can never remember. I I always forget that, too, and that makes me feel bad as a Superman. But see, I think you could also throw in as a possibility, you know, a, a, de- a line of demarcation would be the new look Batman. Because that's yeah. where that character suddenly went from being silly and fighting aliens to they were making a conscious decision to try to sort of half-ass bring him back to his roots. So and then he and then he got really TV age right because the show was so popular and then that was canceled and the books started failing and that's when they brought in Denny O'Neill right. and Neil Adams. So I think there's a lot of of lines of demarcation and to me it comes down to a matter of you know can you argue that this was a a a, a line of demarcation for the entire line or was this just for a particular character because like the two you cited like the green lantern or the superman ones those are lines for those characters but there are those also moments where the entire li- yeah the entire universe yeah. and i don't think so but you know it'd be interesting to get into that sometime yeah, because we just talked about That was the best tangent ever on this show, I swear to God. <laughs> All from Frankie's comment. Um, the next one is from Jose Rivera. It's, uh, it's titled Episode 2. It says, Hey guys, I just wanted to say how much I enjoyed the second episode. Aside from being a great issue of All-Star Comics, I wanted to mention how much I enjoyed the discussion about the ads. My aunt was a heavy collector in the 70s and early 80s. From what I understand, she picked up whatever was on the racks. Back when you could do that. Well, as my love of comics grew, she gave me a good portion of her collection. Sweet. Mm -hmm. Chief among them were comics with the hostess and comic ads. Some of my favorite comic ads were the ones that involved showing us the new Doom Patrol, the showcase issue was Adam Strange, Hawkman and Hawkwoman, the cover to the issue of The Flash where Iris Allens dies. Uh, 174, I believe that was. I'll always remember that magnifying glass over the cover. And the ones that stick out most in my memory of DC Comics Presents number 10, where Sergeant Rock and Easy Company were walking away from a soldier's grave, only for that soldier to emerge from the ground, and it's Superman. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Although these comics were 10 to 18 years old when I got a hold of them, I loved how these ads would spark my imagination and make me want to track down these back issues. They were effective advertising and made me want to pick up titles I had never heard of before. And if I was particularly lucky, I'd find an ad of the DC Blue Ribbon Digests, of which I'm sure the Super Squad issues were reprinted in one. Yes, I believe they were. Yes. Or the ultimate and great additions to letter pages, comic strips by Fred Hemback. Yeah. I like this Jose guy. (laughs) 
I love the Justice Society, but I also love nostalgia. And while I wasn't born when they when when some of the comics you'll be talking about were published, thanks to my aunt and her collection, I got a better knowledge of Earth Two and the DCU. Keep up the amazing work, Jose. P.S. Thanks to you guys, I want a hostess. <laughs> thanks a lot, dude. That is like a great story. Yes, yes, it is. Oh man! It reminds me an awful lot of. I, I could really identify with this story because uh, when, when I was a kid and first really starting to get into comics, um, my mother and uh, one of her brothers, one of my uncles, worked at the local paper company in the town where I lived. It was uh, it was called Crown Zellerback. I don't have any idea if they're still around. Well, they worked there. Plus, we lived across the street from that place. And it was a paper mill. And one of the things they did, they made paper out of recycling paper. So my mother and uh, and w- one of my uncles, they would hook me up all the time with these giant stacks of coverless comics. And this was, you know, late 70s, early 80s. So I was getting stacks all the time of all these comics. You know, some of them would have a little age on them. Every once in a while, there'd be old issues of like adventure comics or some early Superboys and stuff like that. I loved that stuff. And I don't think to this day that I ever would have had so much access to that stuff if it wasn't for them bringing that stuff home and and, and literally saving it from going to the pulp, you know. To, to being pulped down to, for for recycled paper, so I can totally identify with what he's talking about with these old ads and stuff. Because I, I I thrilled to the same ones, you know, with the same cool covers and stuff like that. What it also kind of brings me back to is something I'm trying to get back to as as a collector and reader myself is getting to that back to that point where you just pick up something and read it. Yeah, doesn't matter what it is, you're just going to give it a shot because. For too many years, I would say from 97 till just a, like a year or two back, I was so totally devoted to either reading the new stuff or tracking down an entire run before I started reading it. Right. And I really want to get back in my own personal reading as stuff I don't do for podcasts just going, man, I've got like these random issues of Beauty and the Beast, the Beast, <laughs> uh, whoever what that was, either Dazzler or somebody else. I think it was Dazzler. Like that miniseries right. from Marvel. Mm-hmm. Like, why should I wait till I'm reading through my X-Books to read that? I'm just going to freaking read it now. It doesn't matter. And that's what it was like when I first started reading comics at all. It didn't matter. I just wanted to read comics. I just wanted to read stories. I just wanted to read about characters. It didn't matter if it was issue 587. You know, I, I didn't even think about wanting to get issues 1 through 586. I just I just had this really cool Batman book that I found on the street or, or in the school library or whatever. So it's kind of depressing. But that's why we do these podcasts, <laughs> talking about the comics we love. Well, he also he started off his uh, his letter talking about how much he enjoyed uh, the discussion about the ads. I think we've gotten the most feedback on that. Everybody seems yes. to love us talking about the ads, particularly <laughs> the, the hostess ads. So we will continue that uh, as they as those ads pop up because we're enjoying the hell out of doing those too. So, and we're both very snarky. Oh yes. So. <laughs> 
I think I, I, I think there is a difference between being dismissive of something and being snarky about it and coming at it from the love uh, of the medium. A good example of this is uh, one of the guys that works for me uh, or works under me, you know, was like, I've watched parts of that old Hulk series. He got mad about bees. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you talking about? And then I remembered he's talking about a particular episode of The Incredible Hulk where David Banner stumbles upon a beehive and that's what causes him yeah. to turn into the Hulk. Yes, I remember that. Now, when I, and this is going to sound elitist, but it's not really intended to be that, you know, if that was something I was going to make fun of, it's coming from a position of loving that series. From him, it's like a YouTube clip, and there's just a there's such a a soulless edge to that kind of snark, right? If that makes any sense, what's no, it kind? does, it does, because I experienced the same thing when uh, when somebody that's uh, on the outside, let's say, makes fun of original 1960s Star Trek, it pisses me off. But then I think, you know. I spent most of my childhood making fun of Star Trek. But the difference <laughs> is, is that I love it, and I'm making fun of it because, you know, it's like picking on a it's like picking on a sibling or something. You know, you yeah. really do love them, but you can beat the hell out of them. You know, but if somebody else beats the hell out of them, then you want to go kick that person's ass. So it's kind of, I think it's the same type of thing. It's like, you know, I can pick on Star Trek all day long, but if you pick on it from an outside perspective – then it pisses me off, and it, it doesn't. It's logically, it makes no sense whatsoever. But I totally understand what you're talking about. <laughs> All righty, really quick before we get into the main feature of this episode, we are going to continue looking back at All Star Comics number three, since there's about 15 billion stories in that book. This is the <laughs> third story. There's like eight or nine. I I think there's 50. I'm not sure. But uh, as we've been discussing, Johnny Thunder has crashed the, f- the first like official meeting of the Justice Society of America and is kind of you know picking at these people and making them tell stories, which seems kind of rude. But this one is the Spectre's story, which was written by... There, there's no title for it, even at the Grand Comic Database, which will usually have some kind of title for it. But this was written by Superman co-creator and Spectre co-creator Jerry Siegel with art by Spectre co-creator Bernard Bailey and a panel by Everett Hibbard. And Spectre goes into his story. It's midnight, a full moon, not long ago. A night watchman is killed seemingly by a shadow. The next morning, uh, police officer Jim Corrigan, who is secretly the Spectre, joins the coroner who says, and I quote, he was strangled by superhuman strength. Not strangled by someone with superhuman strength. He was strangled by the superhuman strength. It just doesn't really hold up for me. Anyways, Corrigan thinks, thinks that this is only the beginning, and the next night, another man is killed. But the murders stop. But on the next full moon, just as Jim Corrigan was suspecting... Whatever this thing is strikes again. In fact, it's chasing two people who, uh, a couple in the woods, God knows what they were doing in there. Um, I've got a good idea what they were doing in there, but, you know, they wouldn't mention that in this kind of comic. The chief puts Corrigan on the case, and that night after he leaves headquarters, a statue starts following him. The statue tries to kill him. This statue is one goofy looking statue. 
He's got like this <laughs> type of face. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I know. I think you're following along, Scott. I don't know if you'd agree with that or not, but <laughs> he just looks like he eats a lot of cheese. <laughs> I, I think that's a good way to put it. But the statue tries to kill him, but Jim changes into the specter and begins to follow the stature, statue, who just doesn't notice that there's this white guy with a green cloak following him, and he's like going along going, Ha-ha! Death! Death! Hee-hee! <laughs> and the specter's line is great. That thing is thirsting to kill! I love this dialogue. When the creature tries to kill a passing police officer, 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 uh, the specter stops him, and the creature introduces himself as Oom the Mighty. Oom, from the dark side of the moon, untold it ages ago, I roamed the earth in my search for violent death. Then satiated, I went off for a distant, to a distant corner of the universe for a brief sleep. Now I thirst for death, so I'm back to snatch what I desire. So Oom challenges the Spectre to a race to bring the Redstone of Yardsicle uh, back to Earth, and the person who brings brings it back first will remain on Earth while the other must leave. And the race is on, with the two fighting and tricking each other the entire time. Oom manages to get the Moonstone but, and races back to Earth, but the Spectre gives him... Well, at first he wants to give him a hot foot, which... Uh, does anybody know what a hot foot is anymore? Isn't that where you like put a match in somebody's shoe and then light it and it yeah, yeah and like burn them? This is this is how people used to pass the time back in like the thirties, twenties and thirties. That's that's precious. But he doesn't give him a hot foot, but he gives him a hot hand, which sounds vaguely dirty. I thought you had and to he, pay for that. <laughs> if you don't know what a ZJ is, you can't afford it. And Oom drops the stone, and the Spectre wins. But Oom double-crosses him, but the Spectre manages to get one over on Oom, makes the statue stand back where it came from, and has whatever spirit Oom is leave the statue, enter the Moonstone, and the Spectre throws it back into the, out into space. And that's that's pretty much it. That's the story. I mean, there, there's a... There's a there's like a brief like coda where the chief and Spectre are walking by the uh, the cheese eaten statue, with the chief going odd how the moon murder suddenly stopped. I guess we'll have to list this case as unsolved. I guess you're right, chief. Unsolved, eh? I know better. Then why don't you fucking tell him? <laughs> it's not like Jim Corrigan going, you know, the Spectre put a stop to this and all this weird stuff happened. At least it would have just been filed away. That's. <laughs> This is a goofy little story, to say the least. I am not much on the art. No. No, I was just noticing that, too. I, I try to be chari- No, That sounds bad. <laughs> Saying I sound charitable. I, You know, I try to judge art within the context of the other art of the time period. And some of the Spectre artwork that I've seen is very good, but this... I don't know. He just couldn't handle the action of it. But uh, I'm really glad I read this because now I know, uh, jumping ahead just a little bit, in later issues of All-Star Squadron, Oom shows back up again. And I always kind of wondered where he came from, and it's always kind of neat. It's like, you know, that episode of The Simpsons where Milhouse, Bart, and uh, whatever that other kid's name is, read the first issue of Radioactive Man and go, wow, that's how it happened. <laughs> I like that feeling. So, But, the, you know, it's... 
at one point, the Spectres fighting a dragon in space. You can't really get much better than that in, in terms of comic book fun. So, <laughs> I don't know. I just think this is like the story that after it's done, everyone's just kind of looking at the Spectre, and you hear some crickets in the background. <laughs> He's like, well, fuck you guys. I'm, I'm going to eat some more food. <laughs> he's he's one gonna... of those characters that, uh, I don't know, I, I, I could never really get into him that much. It wasn't really until uh, Jim Aparo's work on, uh, on the Spectre in Adventure Comics that I found him interesting really in any way i i never really got what was supposed to be the whole deal with him well it's like a lot of golden age stories uh, now that i'm reading more of them is it, it seems like in some cases they didn't quite know what to do from story to story like they didn't have a firm handle on how to uh, how to deal with the character right so it seems a little off-putting well you know when when jim aparo was drawing the character in adventure comics and i think he had his own title yeah, for a while there as well, you know, he became that angry right hand of vengeance of God, right? And you can hook stories around that because then you can have little O. Henry morality tales mixed with a little EC action as well. So that's how I always saw. It. I, I like him more the way I, I almost envision him these days. Is he's he's almost like a like a a mega powerful almost evil in a sort of sense. He's like, almost like an evil watcher. You know, like the watcher yeah. over at Marvel, when the watcher shows up, everybody's like, oh shit, you know, something, something <laughs> bad's going to happen. Whereas in DC, when the Spectre shows up, it's like, oh shit, the Spectre's going to make something bad happen. And I like that, you know, so he's, he's become almost like the evil watcher kind of thing. I, I like that. I think that's a much better role for that character to play. Unfortunately, I don't think... I think that plays he's one of those characters that to me plays much better when he's used sparingly and only pops up at those dire moments whereas you know back in this era and then you know when he was in adventure and even in his own title you know he, he's one of those guys I, I think it was you that commented about the phantom stranger and you know how he you found him kind of boring and don't see how he could really carry his own title. I, I would agree with that character too. He's he's much better as one of those guys that pops in mysteriously from time to time, but when you actually try to have a running backup feature or a running title with that character, it doesn't quite work because then you're constantly scrambling for something interesting for him to do to follow him yeah. you know, as as the one guy through an entire adventure. It just when it comes to these mysterious, weird supernatural characters, I don't think they work as well that way. And because he was played by, like that in the 60s and in the 70s and the writers kept playing with that, when you get to like the 80s and 90s, everyone, it's like the writers was look, the writers were looking at what happened in the Golden Age and goes, how did this character hang out with those people right. mm-hmm. on a regular basis? Right. That just makes absolutely no sense. Like, you have to retcon it that he's the creepy guy no one really wanted to talk to. Right. That they were uncomfortable around. They were always glad when he left. It's like, oh, good, he didn't turn the waiter into a pillar of sand because of something the waiter did, you know, back when he was in high school and I got drunk with his friends right yeah i mean exactly i mean if he was that same character in the 40s that he is seemingly in the 70s and 80s and later you know where he's that 
you know, the spirit of vengeance or whatever, then why didn't he just go over to Germany and turn Hitler into a pile of salt or whatever? You know? Spear of destiny. Yeah. <laughs> eh. <laughs> we'll be talking about that much. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little little too pat in my in my opinion, but yeah, we'll 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 get to that much further down the road, I guess. So where do you want to go from here? Well, we got All-Star Comics number 61, and you're taking the lead on this one that DC Comics salutes the Bicentennial number 70. Yeah, I love it. I love it. <laughs> yep, this, this was 1976, July-August issue 1976, All-Star Comics number 61. We got a cover by Ernie Chan going at this time. He's going by Ernie Choa. I, guess, I still don't know how to pronounce that. Chua, Choa. Inks by uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. The writer-editor on this is Jerry Conway. Illustrators are Keith Giffen and Wally Wood. They even spelled Keith Giffen's name right this time. Original cover price. Now, I was noticing something that we failed to notice last time around, that DC, the sneaky bastards, they bumped the price up five cents. So this issue and the prior issue were actually 30 cents. But when we started this title, it was 25 cents. So they, they snuck up the price on us. I'm calling bullshit right now. I wish they only bumped up a nickel. Yeah, no kidding. Instead of a freaking dollar. Yeah, no, God. Well, you know, it's like that one letter you just read. You know, I remember that. I remember back in the day where, you know, five bucks would get you every title on the stands that you gave a crap about. And you'd probably have money left over for a bag of Doritos and a drink, you know. Uh, Get a Slurpee with your Captain America. Oh, my God. Uh, I just just want to stop and go cry right now. (laughs) But I can't. I have this issue to go through. So this story is entitled Hellfire and Holocaust. So you know it's going to be a good one right there. There is no roll call in this issue. However, I made one for you because I'm that kind of guy. So in this issue, we got Dr. Fate, Green Lantern, Hawkman, Flash, Power Girl, the Star Spangled Kid, Wildcat, and Dr. Midnight. And in this story, we start out Dr. Fate and Green Lantern are engaged in battle with the former astronaut Christopher Pike, who has been mysteriously transformed into the mega-powerful nut job known as Vulcan. During the awesome fight, in which Fate and Vulcan go at it intensely and cause a whole hell of a lot of property damage, Green Lantern is kept busy keeping civilians from being squished by all this falling debris and all this stuff that uh, the other two guys are knocking all about. Ultimately, Vulcan brings down the house, literally a whole bunch of them as a matter of fact, and flies off leaving a very distressed Green Lantern to begin searching through the flaming rubble for his fallen pal, Dr. Fate. We get a very brief interlude in which Carter Hawkman Hall shows his friend, one Dr. Clyborne. Is it Kilborn or Clyborne? I think it's Clyborne. I think it's Clyborne. Uh, He shows him his latest discovery, an actual Lemurian survivor trapped in a giant block of amber. Uh, Clyburn tries to warn Carter about the creature, but Carter isn't having any of it. He doesn't, you know, he's doing this typical, well, you know, I'm all about science or whatever the hell. And while they're talking unseen by both of them, the amber begins to bubble away. Vulcan, meanwhile, comes crashing out of the sky, momentarily weakened, but then he quickly begins to recover. 
at the JSA Brownstone, left trashed and ablazed after last issue's fight with Vulcan. Flash, Power Girl, the Star-Spangled Kid, and Wildcat look on as firefighters battle the fire. Now, this was one of the things that stood out to me. Why the hell are the three, you know, three out of four of these guys could put the fire out in a matter of seconds, yet they're all just kind of standing around? Actually, the Star-Spangled Kid wants to put the fire out, and Wildcat literally tells him to shut up and let the professionals handle it. And yeah. when the kid, I have a note about that okay. actually for when we talk about it. Yeah, well, when the kid wonders what use his cosmic rod is if he doesn't, you know, if he doesn't actually use it, Power Girl then delivers this cryptic and awkward statement about, uh, you know, what good is power if you use it too much? And I'm like, you know, what do you mean, like to save people and stop fires and shit? It makes no sense to me at all. It's very awkward, and I really don't know what what the author was was intending that to be all about in that moment. It really didn't make any sense to me at all. It's not like he wanted to use his cosmic rod to make, like, Jiffy Pop or something. He wanted to use it to put out a goddamn fire. I mean, isn't that pretty much what a superhero is supposed to do is – you know, he's not using his powers in a in a frivolous or extraneous way. He, he was wanting to use them exactly for the purpose that God gave these people superpowers. I just, I really don't get that moment at all. It's really awkward to me. Anyway, Flash's wife Joan shows up, begs him to come home, and surprisingly, Flash does. <laughs> About this time, Hawkman and Doctor Midnight arrive to take up Flash's slack. Um, they've been summoned by the uh, Star-Spangled Kid, who actually snuck in some use for his cosmic rod after all. And they all start to compare notes when Green Lantern's freaky floating tri-head-looking thing materializes and calls the group to Times Square. They prepare to head out when Wildcat realizes that Power Girl has already split. So we cut to her streaking across town to investigate a UFO that has just crashed north of Gotham City. Out steps a guy who looks a hell of a lot to me like one of the Toad Men from an early Incredible Hulk issue. Uh, Power Girl tries to subdue the guy, but just bounces off his handy-dandy force field. The rest of the JSA shows up where uh, Green Lantern is, and they assist him in locating Dr. Fate and extracting him from all the wreckage, but it doesn't look good for the for Dr. Fate. Power Girl gets into a full-blown tussle with the Toad Man, and a whole lot more of the city gets torn up, all while she's getting these weird psychic flashes. Hawkman and the Star-Spangled Kid track Vulcan to the train depot where he came crashing down a while back and engage him in battle again. Hawkman and the Star-Spangled Kid are just managing to hold their own when Power Girl arrives on the scene with the Toad Man in tow. Turns out that she's put the psychic flashes together, realized that the Toad Guy isn't a threat after all, and that he is responsible for the transformation that, yes, saved Christopher Pike's life, but it also turned him into a raging, super-powerful maniac. So, just to prove this, Vulcan then toasts the poor little toad man right there on the spot, fries him to a crisp, poor little Kermit. So, Power Girl uh, tells the star-spangled kid that the toad guy was trying to fix Vulcan's flaw, which is a super sensitivity to sunlight. So, the star-spangled kid uses his cosmic rod, which is powered by starlight, as a weapon, 
and actually blows Falk into smithereens. So the next morning at City Hospital, Hawkman comments on the irony of Vulcan killing the alien ultimately caused Vulcan to destroy himself. Uh, no. No. Sorry, Hawkman. <laughs> this was all only three panels ago, if you look back. You guys blew him the fuck up. So Dr. Midnight, in his civilian identity of Dr. Charles McNiter, enters the room and announces that Dr. Fate is dying and only a miracle can save him. And that's how the issue ends. I liked this issue, but wow, do I have some problems with it. So so that ending, with only a miracle can save him, do we do the dun-dun-dun? Or like the price is, more, or the price is right? <laughs> well, I think it, either one is perfectly it's valid. It's always like that, though. You know? <laughs> I mean, it could be Jimmy Olsen has a hangnail. Only a miracle can save – if it happens on the last panel, then it's going to take a miracle to save him from a hangman. <laughs> They've always got to – because it, you know, it's, that, it's that hook. You, know, you want to keep him coming back for the next issue. Uh, my first note about the issue in general is the art is freaking amazing yes. pretty much throughout the entire thing. This first battle – on page three, there is a shot of Green Lantern forming this giant shield to keep all of the crap that is just coming off of Vulcan from burning the city to a ground. And his cape is flying, and he's got... He's doing that... Um, they would do this a lot on Justice League Unlimited, where John Stewart would hold his arm like he's almost holding a gun. Yes. And he's doing it here, and it's basically you, you get the sense that he's just pouring it, and everything looks. It's just so dynamic. Mm-hmm. I mean, this whole fight scene, Doctor Fate. I have always had this weird appreciation for Doctor Fate's look, even though it's goofy as hell, <laughs> and it's blue and yellow. It's just like, wow, that's those are two primary colors that really don't work together. But for some reason, Doctor Fate looks. Yeah, great. he does. I always wanted the Dr. Fate superpowers action figure just because I thought he looked cool. Got that and the Martian Manhunter. Easter of 1995. <sighs> you suck. I don't have it anymore. Oh, okay. Well, good. I feel better <laughs> I have, now. <laughs> I, have, I have three superpower figures right now. That's it. I used to have almost all of them. Wow. <laughs> now, on. Um, they were my Migos. So, even though I had Migos when I was really little. Ah. Uh, See, I had a few. I had a few superpowers, guys, but I only had, you know, I only ever had, like, the popular ones, you know, the ones that were probably a dime a dozen. I didn't have any, like, the rare ones or anything, but loved them anyway. I thought they were awesome. I'm going to derail us just for a second, because you know you and I are of a particular generation when we refer to our action figures as guys. Mm Mm-hmm. I have all the Star Wars guys. They did it on Family Guy once, and I'm like, oh, my God, I remember talking like that. Well, it's funny. I was uh, I was in the car the other night, um, and I was out doing some Christmas shopping. And I call my wife on the phone, and I say, uh, "Hey, ask Scotty if he wants any guys this year." And I'm thinking, if somebody overhears me saying that, they're going to wonder what the <laughs> hell is that conversation all about, you know? But of course, she knows what I'm talking about. But still, that would sound very strange to an outsider that that has no concept of what that that's all about. But uh, on the subject of the art, though. Uh, I just had a note that says you can really see the Giffen in this issue, art-wise. Oh, God, and, yeah, because, yes. I mean, as as early as this is in his career, the Supergirl battle pages 
are you know there's mm-hmm. one one page here. I wish to God these pages were numbered, but it's uh, it's just a page. It's the classic nine panel spread. You know, all all evenly sized panels of super. Uh, did I just say Supergirl? Power Girl. I meant to say Power Girl is in battle with the Toad guy. And damn, I mean, it's just it's classic Keith Given. It's it's fantastic. I love it. And they're just she's tearing up huge chunks of the city trying to take this guy out. I love it. I love the property <laughs> damage. <laughs> Collateral damage. What's that? I love it. The, the more damage in a comic like this, when they just you know just tear shit up, the the more I love it. Because this she looks pissed. Yeah. yeah she, <laughs> well, see, this is another this is another one of those things that I think really. Mm-hmm sets her apart from being just the Earth 2 version of Supergirl because I can't see Supergirl doing this. I don't see Supergirl ever really... I don't remember a time when she. I really saw her get really pissed off, and I don't remember a time when I saw her just you know, willy-nilly just tear up the city trying to take somebody down. You know? Well, they're really reflections of their cousins when you really think about it. Because the the Earth Two Superman, especially in his early days, was much more rough and tumble. You're right. Than than his Earth One counterpart, and it would go to, uh, and it would go to reason, I guess, that his cousin would have a similar mindset, even though she seems to have issues with her cousin, but I think that's more of a, a sibling rivalry type right. situation uh, since they're the closest things they have to a brother and sister. Right. Yeah, that's going to come up cousins. next issue, and uh, yeah, I'm mm-hmm. fascinated to talk about that, because I, I like that angle when we get there. Um, what else? Did I, oh, right off the bat, right on the cover, uh, there was something that occurred to me. I, I really like the cover on this. It's a it's an angle shot. We're kind of looking down at the city, and on the edge of this roof, Vulcan is blasting Doctor Fate, and uh, Green Lantern is zapping Vulcan. And then we've got this flying hover car looking thing <laughs> with the blind guy driving the car, <laughs> and Wildcat, you know, is is in the passenger seat. And not only is that hilarious, but also I got to thinking, you know, a lot of superhero teams from, you know, from these guys to Marvel's champions to, I don't know, the Avengers, a lot of people have some sort of flying car, some sort of flying vehicle. Well, in this cover image, you know, you can see way down to the to the street level, all these cars and stuff down there. And I got to thinking... What what would people in the you know what would everyday people in the real world think about these superheroes and they see you know you're stuck down there and say five o'clock gridlock traffic trying to get home <laughs> and you see these superheroes most of whom can fly and then they've also got a flying car wouldn't you get just a little bit pissed about that I mean wouldn't it kind of bug you just a little bit especially if they let the blind guy drive. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I would love it if he was actually like clipping the side of the building. In this. <laughs> Am I hitting it yet? Am I too close? And you just have the shot of Wildcat just like crapping his pants. <laughs> Why did I let the blind guy drive? <laughs> well, I know that this issue of of Doctor Midnight's vision is going to come up in one of our our emails that we're going to read next time around. But uh, again, I have to comment on. Mid, uh, there's one part in this where Midnight seems to have like thermographic vision, 
And okay, I get Dr. Midnight. I understand how he works with he's blind, yet the goggles give him like a, a sort of sight, like an infrared type of sight. But my issue with him from that that issue we read before wasn't the infrared vision. It was the fact that he was using it like a lie detector. That's something I don't remember him ever doing before. I could be wrong about that, but it seemed like it was almost made up on the spot for that issue, for for that instance. And again, that same sort of thing seems to happen here where we get an actual perspective shot from Midnight looking at – what is he? He's looking at a fire or something. And it looks like he's got some sort of – or no, I know what it is. It's when they were searching for Dr. Fate in the rubble. And he is able to pick Fate out of the rubble by Fate's heat signature. Isn't that what it is? Let me see. I've got to find yeah, this something thing. Like that. Yeah, It's very bizarre. Yeah, here we are. He goes, you forget, you forget, Wildcat. Though a blind man uh, – yeah, though a blind man, I can, quote, see through my infra goggles, heat patterns, an indication of shape, one mound hotter than the other. There, lantern, his body heat points there. That's her, that's thermographic vision. I don't yes. remember him ever having that before or using it again. So it's I, I'm wondering – was this a conscious effort to kind of beef him up a little bit, to give him a little bit of extra uh, – um, shit, I'm blanking on the word uh, – a little bit extra gimmick than just simply – you know, because Dr. Midnight, while I think he's a cool character and I like his look and everything, never seems really all that dynamic. You know what I mean? He's – like the modern one, for example, is almost like – like Batman crossed with Daredevil, you know he's he's like the yeah. blind Batman. Whereas this guy, that seems to be his only shtick is he's I'm blind. he's blind, but he sees at night. Well, you know, hooray! <laughs> Where's this owl? I want to know where the owl is. What did he do to the owl? <laughs> That's just depressing. Though on that page, which I believe is pay, I don't. Why doesn't they? Why don't they have page numbers? You have Doctor Midnight carrying. Dr. Fate. Is it me or does that look like that classic Robin Dies at Dawn cover from the 50s in Batman? You're right. Well, also, right to the left of him, one of my favorite notes is Green Lantern's doing the, why God? Why? He's screaming at this, he's holding his head and screaming at the sky. It's hilarious. And then also in the in the panel, just to the left of that, is Wildcat really punching a girder? Yes. Ow! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, though to backtrack a little bit, question for Wildcat. You kind of brought it up, but here's my question. Uh, if you left things for the professionals, doesn't that kind of make you irrelevant? Yes. <laughs> when he's talking to just Star Spangled Kid about not putting out a fucking fire. You know, they're they're gonna he's gonna give him shit about well let the firemen do their job. Oh wait a minute, what about the policeman that you're showing up constantly? <laughs> you know? Why not let the policeman do the job? Uh yeah. It, it's Carter Hall in Interlude One is so seventy smooth with his <laughs> turtleneck and his sport coat. <laughs> Um, <laughs> this is not one of those times where I connected to Hawkman as a character, especially when he's just... I mean, the, the creature is called Xanadu. <sighs> <laughs> 
Anyways, but the creature's got... It's another one of those creatures that, that like, ate too much cheese, apparently, or just really wants to... Cheese! What the hell is with this design? Man, this is... <laughs> I'd like to say that Xanadu leads somewhere interesting. No. But it doesn't. No. No. Not he actually all. looks like he's going to lead straight to the disco in that outfit that he's in. <laughs> that, that, that is one svelte outfit, man. I'm digging it. I mean, he's, he's like, he, he just needs a couple more gold chains, and he'll be a little chest hair fluffing out the top. Man, he'll be nailing every girl in sight at the <laughs> disco. Going up to Studio 54. Oh, uh, yeah. Um... Flash leaving in the middle of the battle because his wife comes and gets him. I'm expecting any day now for this to happen to one of my podcasts. If they had cell phones back yeah. during this time, I would almost buy that he had called her and said, "Honey, yeah, can, can, can you come over and get me out of this? These assholes. I just, I just really, you know." But I just hate the stilted dialogue. Wildcat, old friend, could I see you a moment? And then Wildcat coming back like, God, another one of my buddies going off with his wife instead of fighting. You can tell Wildcat was never. I'm married. loving it. <laughs> it's well, plus the, the look on Flash's face when he's calling Wildcat over and saying, "Can I see you a moment?" I mean, he's He's whooped. You can tell right in that moment. He's like, ah, oh, God, you know, my wife's here, and she wants me to go home. I'm sorry, guys. I got to go. <laughs> Plus, I love uh, I love the shot up here where she's calling to him from behind the police barricade. The guy in front of her looks like, uh, what's that guy, Gabe Kaplan from Welcome Back, Cotter. <laughs> He's just looking at her like, lady, you're screaming in my ear. It's hilarious. Yeah, I, I'd love to see the, deli- the the alternate scene where the cops tackle her and the Flash just beats the shit out of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I can't walk anymore. But I love the fact, please won't you come home, seeing you here, I'm afraid. What does Star Smangle Kid think? Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh, is that it? <laughs> Uh, I think my favorite line in this entire book, though, is not when you've got a rod that works with starlight, chum. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> All right, there's no denying at the end of this story, as much as Hawkman is apparently living in his own little fantasy world, Star Spangled <laughs> Kid blows him up. He yes, overcharges he him with starlight, and the guy frickin' explodes. And then not three panels later, he says, the alien came to help Vulcan. Oh, wait, no, he says, it's ironic, he says. The alien came to help Vulcan, but Vulcan destroyed him. And by destroying the alien, Vulcan also destroyed himself. No, he didn't. You killed <laughs> I would him. Like to see Power Girl. I would just like to see Power Girl. Didn't Star Smangled... Didn't Star Spangled Kid kill him? Yes. And by destroying the alien, Vulcan destroyed himself. That's what we're telling everybody. Well, there's plenty of room above her in that picture to where you could actually dub in your own dialogue box, and she actually needs to be saying, what the hell are you talking about? 
But see, he, he's the chairman, so I think – actually, I think you're on to something. He's not so much saying that as he's telling them that that's what their cover story is <laughs> going to be, and that's how he's going to put it down in the official JSA computer log thing, you know? I'm assuming that all, you know all super teams have something like that. Like the Avengers have like the Avengers files. These guys yeah. probably have some sort of secret files in their computer, you know, where later on when they team up like with the Justice League and they all compare notes and read each other's file folders and shit like that, you know, it's all going to look all smooth and you know they they've glossed over the part where they blew the guy up. Like you've got you've got like one of those later meetings where Firestorm and Power Girl are hanging out, and there was that time that that Vulcan guy blew himself up. Yeah, if you believe what you're reading there, <laughs> what? Nothing. <laughs> See, that should have been the secret of identity crisis. Right then and there, I would have bought that. I would have bought someone dying over that. Yeah. Okay, I'm on to something here. It's time to. Time to start a fan fiction site. Let me see. This is 1976. When did George Perez's first run on Avengers? That was that was what early 80s, late like 79, 80, okay. somewhere around there. Because I, I, I was wondering how much of a coincidence it was or not, but I guess it's a total coincidence. But tell me that that very last panel of the book of Doctor uh, McNider does not look like uh, Henry Peter Guyrich from the Avengers. <laughs> Just, just make it a little more of a buzz cut and color it red. You are on to something. Yeah. You know, it's amazing how many of these Golden Age heroes are blonde. Mm-hmm. It's just, I'm sorry. You take off the glasses, Dr. M- uh, Dr. McNighter looks a hell of a lot like Kent Nelson. Well, isn't that the whole, uh, what do you call it? Is it Aryan? Not Aryan. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess it is. Yeah, yeah Aryan thing, yeah. What are you suggesting, Scott? I'm not. I'm. I'm, 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 I'm not saying anything. I'm going to shut up right now. <laughs> I, I guess that's about all I've got on this. I, you know, I, I hope that our comments come off the right way. I hope that our our, yeah. our fun making snarkiness comes off as as what it really is is, is utter love and and appreciation for these books because I really. Love it, you know. I'm, I'm I get such a kick out of it, but at the same rate, I can I can irreverently poke fun at it too because there's a lot of fun to be poked at at this issue. But it was a blast. Well, speaking of poking fun, I guess it's time for the ad. <gasps> oh yeah! Now we're gonna save the first ad in this book for last, as it is the most popular of the ads <laughs> we're to discuss. Yeah, we're gonna get the shit ones out of the way first. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, well, we got special magic set offer from Charms Blow Pops and Charms Regular Pops. Boy, that looks like a bunch of crap for nothing. Mm-hmm. Wow. Let's see what we got. We got the Make Big Money the Easy Way. That's uh, that's kind of that's kind of creepy to offer a kid something like that. No experience needed. Any age, okay. Now I want to know okay, how many. This isn't getting any better. I want to know how many kids disappeared on these door-to-door <laughs> sales things that comics were always trying to get them to wander to strangers' houses. And... When, you, when you knock on the door of Herbert the pervert from Family Guy, <laughs> I'm here to sell some stuff. Hey there, Muslim. Hey, another Slim Jim ad. Yep, giving me heartburn just looking at it. <laughs> now I like uh... the ad for. Uh, you can be a happy, prosperous grit salesman because I liked <laughs> grit paper. You know why I liked it? My grandmother used to get grit, 
and I liked it because eventually Grit ran some of the uh, the Russ Manning Star Wars strips. Really, and I liked them. Yeah, they were they were super cool. So I liked them. But you can you can win prizes too, like a Super Eight camera, a bat, a football helmet. Somewhere a- I used to have a chart. I don't know where the hell I got. Probably from my grandmother. But I used to have a chart from back in the day that actually told you how much shit you had to sell to get even the cheesiest, smallest little thing from these grit ads. And it was ridiculous. I mean, you would have had to have been the grit sales paper boy for like New York City to get a bicycle. (laughs) You know what I mean? It it was ridiculous. Would you buy five subscriptions, please? (laughs) They're so cheap. I want the bike. And then you get the bike and it's cheap. It's like the uh, the Jeep they gave away at the senior ball after party when they had this big raffle. The main prize was a was a Jeep Cherokee from like 1985, <laughs> and the guy who won it had nothing but problems with it. <laughs> we bought this off the side of the road right before we got here. Um, one of the big ads right uh, across from from the page where the Flash uh, gives into his wife. Which, uh, as much as Scott and I make fun of that, we'd probably do the same damn thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it's a super celebration. The Man of Steel tells the story of our nation's birth in six Titanic tales, and Superman salutes the bicentennial, and yes, I own that. Do you? I don't think I have, I have this it. one. It looks really cool. Uh, it's a bunch of historic tales inside. Is it all original? Um, that I do not know. I'd have to do some research on that, but you get the the ruse that routed an army, uh, Panoramic Valley Forge pinup. Do you remember um, when, shoot, I'm trying to think of which one it was. It was either Siegel or Schuster died. I want to say it was Schuster. And there was that that one page in a lot of the DC comics for that, yes. like that month or for a couple months. Or was it that, or was it when nine eleven happened? Shit, I can't remember. Oh, when, yeah, it was when nine eleven happened, and they had that. It's a cover to an issue of Superman, but it's Superman with the eagle. Yeah. Eventually released. I have it somewhere in here. They released a poster. It's not this picture. No, it is this. picture. Yeah, that's what I. Th- yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, I like yeah. that. I really like that. Oh, it's a very, it's a very patriotic Superman picture. So that was from nine eleven, right? Yeah, yeah. The the other one I was thinking the when when Schuster died, that was a different picture. I can't remember what that one was though. Now this one right down here of the limited collector's edition presents um, the Justice League of America. That is, uh, I'm pretty sure that's yeah, that's Neil Adams. Mm-hmm. Now if you flip that over, on the back side is that exact same picture. However. It's the Justice Society of America. And all of the heroes are counterparts. So, like, you've got the Golden Age Superman, the Golden Age Hawkman, Golden Age Wonder Woman. Um, Somebody's different, and I'm trying to remember who it is. I want to say, like, where Aquaman is, it's probably, like, Dr. Fate or Dr. Midnight or somebody who does not have a counterpart on Earth. It's really cool, though, because he he drew them both exactly the same. But it's, uh, I, I, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. They've they've re-released some of that art recently in something. I just can't place in my head where it is. So, 
Um, now you can use isokinetics. It's a new breakthrough in muscle building. <laughs> I wonder if this is where Frank Castle learned that bit at the end of the, the 2004 Punisher film, where he makes that guy hold the the landmine or the grenade. <laughs> um, make money fast. No risk, no investment. Apparently, they're selling social security numbers. <laughs> <laughs> Early identity theft from Anchor Specialty. Awesome. Um, comic book savers. Okay, collectors, you've been clamoring for something to protect your ultra-valuable DC collector's classics. And we aim to please, so here's the answer. Our incredible comic book saver. And you can even be your own de- decorator. Each book comes with a full page of stickers with your favorite characters. I'd like the stickers. You ever get any of these? Uh, no, I, I somebody, my mother, or somebody, one time got me one of those three ring binders with the actual comic sleeve where you can put it in there, and I yes. never even used it because I, for one thing, it's probably the worst kind of plastic to put your comic in. But also, with my collection, I'd need probably like fifty thousand of these things to hold all my <laughs> comics. You know, so it's like I, I, I hate that. Who who has the shelf space for something like that? But yeah, this is for people who have like a hundred and fifty, two hundred. Yeah, books. exactly. I love the uh, I love the stickers though. I'd love to find a collection of these stickers because you got that back breaking Aquaman. Yeah, because again, it's it's those iconic shots. You know, you got the. I'm pretty sure that's a Neil Adams Batman. Not sure about this. Who is that Superman? I'm not sure who it's. It's either Kurt Swan. I think it's Kurt Swan. Is that? I'm not sure. Love this girl. Um, yes. Even though I'm not really a fan of that costume. Oh, I love that costume. That's my least favorite Superman Oh, costume, dude. In all honesty. <laughs> Gotta say, don't like the little S symbol in the, in the like it's a lapel or something. No, I like that one. Because um, there was a time there in, in Adventure Comics where she literally changed her costume every single issue for a while until they finally settled on this one. Some of those are absolutely fucking horrid. If you go on the internet, I'm sure there's probably a comedy site somewhere <laughs> devoted just to all her goofy costumes because some of them were just atrocious. But I, no, I, I dug that outfit. I thought she looked sexy for a change in that one. Alrighty, this is a time period where comic book ads started to really, really suck. And you can tell that with the next ad, which which is for Catch More Fish, Bigger Fish. <laughs> it's an action fish lore. Swims by its own power. I'm not a big fish. Do they not get the fact, I mean, with all these ads in here for, like, weight training and isokinetics and fishing and, and sports... Do they not get it that we're a pretty sedentary bunch? That they are totally – it's like when you watch like Cartoon Network and they show you the MaxiPad commercials. It's like what fucking audience do you think that is watching this, you know? I don't get it. Uh, next page, you do have an ad for another amazing world of DC Comics. Number 11 belongs to the villains. I love this picture because you have Lex Luthor punching Superman. Joker and kicking. Joker kicking Batman in the face. I love it. You know, I'm not much of a uh, of a Dick Dillon fan, honestly, but I do like this piece of art. And you know, one of the reasons I really like it is if you look at both the Flash and Aquaman, the way it looks like they're they're for one thing they're making a face like, oh, dude. And it's like they're trying to crawl out of the box. It's a total who farted cover. I love it. But yeah, that is a total who farted. <laughs> I don't know. Ocean Master looks like he's 
He's trying to like uh, deliverance Aquaman there. <laughs> That, that's kind of wrong. And, so, and Sinestro does look like he's trying to hold Green Lantern down. Mm-hmm. This is really disturbing. And what is Dr. Light doing to Wonder Woman? Goosing her butt. <laughs> well, who wouldn't? <laughs> I love the fact that we're in 1976, and yet the shots of Batman and Robin from the <laughs> the uh, subscription thing on the bottom are like from the 60s. Yep. <laughs> But this is when you could subscribe to Action, Adventure, The Superman Family, Superboy, Superman, World's Finest, Shazam. I'm not seeing a bad title here. Batman, Brave and the Bold, Detective, Flash, Justice League, Wonder Woman, The Joker. There you go. There's your bad title right there. You didn't like The Joker? Eh, it was just kind of, meh. DC Special, Ghosts, House of Mystery, and The Unexpected. That's a nice lineup. It really is a nice lineup. <sighs> okay, speaking of suck-ass covers, The Secret of Teaching Yourself Music. <laughs> and this guy is playing the guitar, and you know his thought is, I'm going to get laid when I learn how to play this. <laughs> and no, not even with that Sean Cassidy hair you got going on there. You, did you just watch The Hardy Boys? He's playing a John Denver is- song, too. <laughs> I like John Denver. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> No, that's fine. No, I mean, I'm sorry that you like John Denver. (laughs) Well played, sir. Um, Next one. God, these ads suck. The world-famous New American. How many freaking muscle-developing ads are in here? I think they're trying to tell us something. I got to get back to the gym, apparently. (laughs) Selling comic books, buying $100,000 worth of inventory, Marvel, DC, Golden Age, large catalog, 50 cents, Jack Hunt. (laughs) <laughs> I wonder if he's, he's Mike's at- brother <laughs> uh, does it get any better oh justice for all includes children number five sweet got another one where the kids are just hanging out sure is hot sure is there's nothing to do I heard there's a party going on at Carol's place let's crash it <laughs> Superman and then just very casually, hi, where are you going? I have I have two notes on this one. My first one is for, for the part you just covered. Superman's just casually strolling down the street. What the hell? You can fly, <laughs> fly. I don't uh, I don't know why that bothers me. It just really does. So they tell him to a party, but we weren't invited. Why did you say that? <laughs> Superman would have just been on his way. You could have just said, we're going to a party, Superman. We'll see you later. You know that they don't hang with that kid anymore either. They're like, God damn it, Tommy. You always crack under pressure, man. Why did you tell Superman we weren't invited to the party? Because he's Superman. <laughs> Be careful. Be careful. Yes, if you were not invited and they don't want you to come, don't crash the party. If you do, you are trespassing, and that's against the law. Not to mention you might get shot. <laughs> or you don't know what's going on at this party. What if this is like a key party? I mean, this was the same. <laughs> so if we are invited in, it's okay. But if not, we should leave right away. Right. What? And that's the end of it. This is my other problem with this story. And I imagine at this point Superman flies away, right? Well, the kids are still left hot and bored. They're left in the same condition they were in at the beginning of the story, so now they're just going to go do something else that's destructive or whatever. Or or maybe they'll start experimenting with drugs or other things. (laughs) 
Good going, Superman. Yeah. You said, you know, now Tommy's a smack addict. Good going. Hustling blowjobs for blow. There you go. I still want to know, why did, Why is he walking down the street? That really, really bothers me. <laughs> I, you know, there's there's times where, you know, there's a great website out there. I'm trying to think of what the hell it's called. It's like Superman's an asshole or something like that. Oh, Superman Dickery. That's it. That's it. That's the one. This is one of those instances. I think he's purposely walking down the street just to rub our our faces in the fact that he can fly, yet he's choosing to walk down the street just to piss me off. I just, I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm not trying to say anything against Superman, but they would have clammed up. They would have just spent oh nothing. Well, carry on then. <laughs> And then they would have gone to the party, they would have crashed it, and one of two things would have happened. Either they would have gotten their asses kicked. Well, one of three things. Either they would have gotten their asses kicked, they would have gotten invited in anyways, because, hey, the more the merrier. Or they would have thrown the guys out, kept the girls, and some really tragic thing happened. (laughs) I don't know. I'm thinking bigger. I'm thinking that it turns out to be some sort of elaborate plan by Brainiac to use the the kids against Superman or something. I don't know. There's something something bigger involved there. Ooh, we can get a metal Superman belt buckle free. Yeah, this is the great... This is how DC is choosing to salute the Bicentennial. You have to buy, what is it? 33 comics, deface them. What the fuck? And if you send us at least twenty-five different cover headings, oh my we god, you free? Yeah, you get a the the, the thing on the, the front. The DC salutes the bicentennial. That's is, what the numbers for. Oh, I never yeah. caught that before. I wonder if that's why I've got so many. I don't. I don't have them anymore because I think I've managed to replace them all. But I used to have a lot of comics with the top of them fucking cut off, and I wonder if that's why. Because some dumbass kid went and sent away for this stupid cheesy bell book. <laughs> Well, we talked about the belt buckle last time, and this is a belt buckle that even Superman would want. But there's Superman right there telling us to collect them, save them, and then send them. So Superman is telling me to deface my comics. Wow, now here is a super weird piece of coincidence, serendipity, whatever you want to call it. All right, third comic on the list, Weird Western Tales, number 35. I just bought this not long ago. It was the last comic I needed to complete my collection of every Jonah Hex appearance. And I cannot tell you why, but that issue was a bitch to track down. I just could not ever seem to put a hand to it. And I finally got it. And there it is on this list. That's just so bizarre. Did it have the, uh, did it have the top yeah, on it? Yes, it, it does okay, have the top good. on it. Now, we got another one of those hodgepodge page of ads on the next page. The the one I like is Learn to Fly Model Rockets with Space 1999. Oh, God. I never really liked that. Show. I liked the ship, though. I thought the ship looked cool. But, yeah, that show kind of sucked, I thought. But uh, you got Major League Baseball card lockers. You got, you got a thing up at the top. It says Comic Catalog Pacific Comics. They would go on to become a publisher themselves. Mm-hmm. But this is when they were still a distributor and a wholesaler. So that's actually kind of neat to see. There's uh, Be Taller. Did you ever order comics from any of these places that would advertise in comics? The only place I ordered comics from... I ordered from two different places, New England Comics. Yeah. 
and Mile High Comics. Those were the only two. I never... I always considered these kind of like comics for sale things kind of shady. I don't know why. I just... I just did. The only one I can remember, I could not tell you what company it was or anything, but back, this must have been late 80s, early 90s, because that's when I was in the service. But when I was in the service, and of course, you know, I was single and everything, and, and living in the barracks, I had a lot more, you know, uh, extra money back then. But there was somebody that used to advertise in all the comics back then where you could send away, and I want to say it was 20 bucks for 100 comics or something like that. It was It was super cheap, whatever it was. And it was just grab bags. And that was another okay. great way to beef up your collection because you'd send them I'm pretty sure it was twenty bucks for a hundred if I remember if I remember right. Some something like that anyway. And I'd send off just about every paycheck. And you'd just get these boxes full of comics. And about a quarter Sweet. of them would be something stupid, but the rest of them were usually pretty pretty decent. And yeah, it was just it was fun. I, I, I in a in a strange sort of way I kinda miss those days. I don't see that sort of thing anymore. Um, if you ever come with me to Titans, you can get a hundred books for like twenty bucks or something. There's DC and Marvel grab boxes. Ooh, I might, I might just do that just for the nostalgia value. It would probably be like a hundred issues of Fish Police or something like that. But still, you know, you never know. Uh, it's pretty random. I got a Marvel one once, and there was like five books I actually needed. <laughs> but uh, it was still worth it. It was still worth it to me. Um, last couple pages before we get to the one, the only, the hostess ad, you got another powerful muscles fast. <laughs> hey, fat ass, be taller, <laughs> get your ass in shape, and learn karate. And then go fishing. And then they had a monogram. Monogram was a pretty heavy advertiser in comics starting around this time as yep. well. Uh, many happy landings and launches with introdu- introducing Monogram's new speedy-built flying models. Oh, man. But that leaves us with the last one, which is actually the first ad. And for the first time on this show, we get to do a uh, hostess ad with the one, the only, the Man of Steel. <gasps> Superman. All right. No. Super- Superman saves the Earth. <laughs> Although, by the end of it, I almost kind of wonder why he bothered. But uh, now, now who, who's reading what? Now, I just want to point out that the aliens in this look like aliens by way of Munchkin Land to me. Actually, I was thinking they look like aliens by the way of, like, extras in the movie Witness with uh, Harrison Ford. <laughs> it's like this is the Jedediah alien because they've got, they've got that serious hair thing. Again, Kurt Swan can't draw aliens. No, no he cannot. All right, so Superman saves the Earth. Zooming through space, Superman heads for an alien planet. And you can tell it's an alien planet because it looks like Tomorrowland in the background. And he's thinking to himself, must reach the meeting of the Interstellar Council before it's too late. And inside, there's a guy who looks like an Amish alien going, Earth is a backward planet. It has never come up with anything good. I say destroy And right there, I think he's making a very valid argument. It's hard to argue with that. But anyway, Superman says, stop! But Superman, as a native of Krypton, you know how primitive Earth is. Not in every way. (laughs) Now, you had said before we're going to get through this without me laughing, and so far it hasn't happened. All right. Not in every way. Let me take you there and show you some Earth food. 
This is a food market. And what are these? Hostess, hostess, no, go ahead. <laughs> hostess cupcakes. They're great. Because apparently Tony the Tiger is the manager of this food hut. Hmm. Hostess cupcakes are delicious. How do you describe them? They're devil's food cake, chocolatey icing, and creamed filling. Terrific, eh? They sure are. If Earth can produce food like this, it deserves to survive. In fact, maybe they can send us some to us. We're only two billion miles away. Hey! You gotta pay for those. Send the bill to my friend Clark Kent, who incidentally is me. <laughs> he might as well just say, send the bill to my secret identity. I, I don't know. It just bothers me. You douchebag. <laughs> you get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Cupcakes. I like Hostess Cupcakes. I like that ad, though. I do. I get a kick out of it. It reminds me of that episode of uh, Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space where those aliens want to blow up the uh, blow up the sun. Just because they're too stupid to have invented sunglasses yet, I like that episode. This is this is right up there on the same like, you know, intelligence level as that. I think. You mean as in we just hit first grade? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and that is it for the ads. Uh, this episode is running kind of long, but we do have one more thing to do. We've been doing character profiles, and since he is at death's door, or at least playing handball at death's stoop. We decided, uh, it's just something I read in a Peter David, but I digress once, so there you go. Ah, okay. We decided to cover Kent Nelson himself, Dr. Fate, uh, who was created by Gardner Fox and artist Howard Sherman. He first appeared in More Fun Comics number 55, which had a May 1940 cover date, and uh, a year or so after that he was actually given an origin. I don't know why they waited so long. That, that, that's kind of bizarre. But Kent Nelson is the son of an archaeologist that is killed when they are exploring the tube of the Egyptian wizard Nabu. Wouldn't it be funny to find out that the archaeologist was actually one of those guys that was always trying to get one over on Indiana Jones? <laughs> and this is how he met his end. Taking pity on the boy, Nabu raises and ages Kent and trains him in the mystic arts. Uh, he did have a love interest named Inza Kramer... Sanders, Nelson, Carmer, it changed. <laughs> like, apparently, this is how I'm imagining what happened, is that somebody sat down to write a, a Dr. Fate story, and they're talking to their editor, and they're like, okay, he's got a girlfriend, right? Yeah, Inza. What's her last name? I, 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 I think it's Sanders. Okay, I'll go with that. Instead of, you know, like, looking at a past issue. To making sure that it's correct. Uh, he fought villains such as Wotan, Karkol, Nagal, Mr. Who. Apparently this is before Doctor Who <laughs> you know, finished, uh, finished medical college. Uh, the Clock, the Octopus, and Mad Dog, in addition to your usual various mad scientists and thugs. In More Fun Comics number 72, his helmet was changed from the full helmet to a half one, and his powers seemed to become more standard and less magical. And a year or so later, he was actually more of a medical doctor, apparently, with even less mystical elements thrown into his stories. Fate left the JSA with issue 21 of All-Star Comics, and around the same time, his strip ended in More Fun with issue 98. Apparently, it was just one of those titles... Uh, or in one of those strips, I mean, that never really f found as much popularity as other characters. 
So it's kind of interesting to think that like what is considered a failure back then is a property that DC keeps trying to bring back and bring back and right. bring back over and over and over again. Uh, Fate came back with the rest of the JSA and some of the JLA-JSA team-ups, and even had a two-issue stint in Showcase Comics numbers 55 and 56, where he teamed up with Our Man to fight Solomon Grundy and the Psycho Pirate. And from there, Dr. Fate was in the JSA all the way up until this issue, where he is apparently dying. Now, a lot more has been added to his background after this issue came out. Uh, Marty Pasco in particular played really heavy, uh, along with Keith Giffen later after the crisis with his with his background and as an origin. The the one little interesting wrinkle that was added right around the same time All Star was uh, was being brought back was in first issue special number nine. Uh, which was written by Marty Pasco and drawn by Walt Simonson, it was revealed that Naboo still resided in the helmet right. and actually took control of Kent Nelson whenever he donned the helmet. That's basically Dr. Fate up until this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he just, Unfortunately, he just wasn't one of those characters that had a lot of legs back in the Golden Age, and they apparently kicked him out of the JSA because of it. <laughs> You're sticking up the place, Fate. Get out. You're a drunk. <laughs> a drunk but that's all I have all right. uh, on Dr. Fate because like I said that's all there really is there's a lot of other interesting things I'd like to talk about but we can't yeah I know what you mean He he's uh, he's one of those characters that you know I, I like his look and all that sort of thing but uh, beyond that don't know all that much about him and never particularly thought he was all that interesting I guess but he's, you know, he's still cool. I don't, like, dislike him. I just, you know, he's just kind of there. I really need to get that Superpowers figure back. <laughs> I'm sure eBay has one. Well, with that, I think we're just about wrapped up for this issue. Let me just point out that this issue is reprinted in Justice Society Volume 1 Trade Paperback. Woohoo! You've been listening to Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. You can email the show by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. You can find the show at two, yes, count them, two websites. The first being www.fortressofbailey2.com. You can also find the show and subscribe to it through iTunes at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Scott has two other podcasts that he co-hosts on a weekly basis. The first is Two True Freaks, which Scott hosts with his childhood friend and former weightlifting partner of Lou Ferrigno, Chris Honeywell. Then there's Back to the Bins, which Scott co-hosts with a cavalcade of podcasting's finest hosts. Both of those can be found at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Mike has two other podcasts he hosts or co-hosts as well. The first is Views from the Long Box, which Mike hosts all by his lonesome for the most part. And you can find that at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's the From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor. That show can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. 
Thank you for listening, and join us next week as we present more Tales of the Justice Society of America.